Welcome to Christian Assembly, a family church. Since 1930, we've been serving the communities of Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia with the good news of Jesus Christ. With over 40 years of Bible teaching and ministry experience, Pastor Bill brings faith-filled revelation from God's Word. We believe with you, wherever you are, that God will inspire and change your life through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly, follow us on social media or visit our website at cafamily.net. I want to share with you this morning about a true disciple of Christ, what it means to be a true disciple of Christ. In the year 2021, nearly 6,000 Christians, individuals, died a martyr's death. That was up 24% from the prior year. In the year 2021, 360 million Christians suffered severe persecution for their faith in Christ. 360 million. Think about that. Of course, it's not unusual for us to hear of people dying a martyr's death or being persecuted for their faith in Christ. But sometimes we don't really get the statistics and see how much of it exists out there. Uh, as a matter of fact, there are many Christians that suffered, go back to Bible days, and they suffered martyrdom. Some were stoned to death. Some were sawn asunder, which means their bodies were cut in two. Some were burned at the stake. Some died by crucifixion. And some were eaten by lions. And there are many other forms of torture and capital punishment that they incurred. All because they believe in Jesus. Look at Acts chapter 7. We have the first martyr mentioned. His name is mentioned so that we know it. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep or he died. That's our first Christian martyr. To save his life, all he had to do was to recant. All he had to do is say, it's not worth me laying down my life. In short, do you know what a true disciple of Christ is? Someone who's willing to lay down his life just as his Savior was willing to lay down his life for him. You see, we sang songs about the blood this morning because that's what it's all about. He laid down his life. He didn't just do good deeds. He poured out his life's blood, died the death. You've heard me say this often. He took your place and mine. He died your death and mine. He suffered your hell and mine. He paid your sin debt and mine. You might want to say, wow. You might want to say it backwards too. 
Can you imagine that? If that's not motivation, I really don't know what is. When it, becomes, when it comes to being a disciple for Christ, why is that so important for us to understand? Well, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, as you read these words with me, you'll understand. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Did you notice what the Great Commission was? Go into all the world and make what? Disciples. Not theologians. Not people that just decide to go to church once in a while. But make disciples and teach them some things. Make them a disciple. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is a disciplined student. A disciple is one who chooses to follow and adhere to the teachings of his teacher. So in other words, what we're saying is you want people to sit at your feet, observe your life, and the goal in mind is to become like you. That's the goal. It's not just to go to church, but to have a transformed life. I want to look into the Word of God, read the Gospels, and look about the life of Jesus and say, He wants me to live like that. That's a true disciple. That says, I want to live the life that my Master lived. I want to teach His words in my lifestyle. I want to embrace His truth in my lifestyle. So in other words, I want to be transformed by the word. Look at Luke's gospel, chapter 6 and verse 40. Look at what it says. The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. Wow. Can you see the depth of that? Does anybody see the depth of that? That's the goal, to be as our master. He came to teach us certain principles and truths so that we can embrace them and then also emulate them. To live our life in such a way so as to demonstrate who he is and what he's really all about. Look in the book of Romans. Everybody knows Romans 8.28, but this is verse 29, the following verse. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to do what? To be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, he saved us so that we can conform to his image and likeness. So when a person is first born again, he has the life and nature of God in him on the inside. But his purpose then is to get what's on the inside to the outside. To manifest through our conduct, our character, our behavior, our words, our attitudes, and the list goes on and on. A true disciple has been born of the Spirit, and chooses to live the life of Christ. The Apostle Paul said it this way, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. But the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God. 
So in other words, by faith, I take the principles taught in his word and I begin to emulate that. I live my life by a different standard. Now, what are some of the marks of a true disciple? Well, since you asked. Number one, it's an individual who will continue in the word of God. Look at John's gospel, chapter eight. Notice these words by our Lord. Then said Jesus to the Jews, those Jews which believed on him. Notice they said they believed on him. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Hmm. What's the qualification to be that disciple? We continue in what? And the word continue there means to abide, to abide in the word. So he wants us to be students of the word, not just when we first get saved, but throughout our lifespan to constantly be involved in the word. Why? So as I look into the perfect law of liberty, I am changed by the spirit from glory to glory. See, it happens line upon line. Precept upon precept. It's not instant. It's not automatic. But it takes on our part diligence in the word of God to see how he wants us to be. To see how he wants us to live. And then hold that up as the standard and say, you know what? I'm not there yet. But that doesn't mean I give up. It means I give in to the spirit and say more and more, change me by what I'm reading from glory to glory. Because his word is the standard. So this disciplined student, what does he do? This disciple of Christ, he studies the word of God. His intent is to surrender to the word of God and to submit to the teachings of the word of God until he begins to conform to the very image of, you could say the word of God because Jesus is the word of God, right? So look, look at John's gospel, chapter 15. Jesus said it this way. We exalt the word of God above even our own understanding of what life is to be about. We, in other words, submit to our creator. He created us. He has a right to govern us. So we submit to his leadership. We submit to his word. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, and he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done for you. So he's trying to paint a picture for us. I think it's very easy for us to see. Abiding in the word or living in the word or being in the environment of the word is where the Christian should live. The disciple chooses to live in that environment. And just as a fish lives in water, and just as a plant lives in soil, if we take the fish out of water, what happens to it? If we take the plant out of the soil, what happens to it? So what's he saying? If you're my disciple, 
then live in the environment of my word from now on. From the moment you gave your heart to Christ, live in the environment of the word. Why? Because that's where we thrive. We live in the word of God. And the word of God, it lives in us. And that's what he's saying here. It's not that I'm saved now, I just go to church. Or I do whatever. It's saying that we stay in the word of God till the word of God takes over our lives. It consumes us. It's a fire in our bones. We tremble at the voice of his word. And when God speaks his word, praise God, he has our attention. E.F. Hutton has nothing over the spoken word of Almighty God. And we shall all be listening to what he has to say, what thus saith the Lord. Can you say amen to that? So in other words, we live in a culture right now that says, hey, I want to make the rules. Hey, I want to make the laws. In 2015, June 26th, our government changed what marriage is defined as. But guess what? God didn't. God never changed his views. He never changed his opinions. Someone once told me God's changed over the years because he sees our culture and he sees where we're at. No, he hasn't changed. He never will change. I am the Lord, I change not. When the word was given to Moses, the commandments on Mount Sinai, and they were there at the foot of the mountain, and they did quake, they were in such fear and reverence because of, of the sight that they saw, they finally just backed off and said, you talk to him. We don't want anything to do with what he has to say. They were so afraid. They were trembling at the voice of his word. Oh, would to God that we would tremble today at the voice of God's word. And when he says, thou shalt not, then we say, I will not. When he gave those ten commandments, which he hasn't changed, the first four involve our relationship with him. He's our only God. Our culture today wants to say, but there's many gods, there's many ways. Mm-mm. No graven images. Well, let's whittle something out of wood and let's bow down and worship that. It mm, doesn't work that way. Remember my name to keep it holy. Oh, we could really expound on that, could we not? At least the Jewish community, guess what? They won't even write G-O-D. They put G, line D. Too holy to even write. We could learn something from that, couldn't we? Because when we use God's name, let's not use it in vain. When we use the name of Jesus, let's not use it in vain. Why is it that seemingly, for whatever reason, when people get upset, it seems like they know Jesus' first and last name? News. Christ is not his last name. He's Jesus, the anointed one. He's Jesus, the most high. He's Jesus, the savior of the world, the redeemer of all mankind. He is Jesus, Lord of all. Hallelujah. That's who he is. So we don't want to be flippant, even as believers, in the use of that name. We consider it holy. So in other words, the word governs our lives. If he says, honor your mother and your father, this is the first commandment with the promise. 
that I may be well with you and you live long on the earth. And you say, but you don't know my mom and dad. I'm sorry, he didn't know that either, did he? He didn't add to that if they're perfect. Did he? No, he just said honor them. That means give them a place of honor and esteem, whether you agree with them or not. Have a right attitude of heart toward them because they brought you into this world. As my mom says, I could take you out anytime I want. She's already in glory, so that's it. As Andrew says, wait till you get there. You know this big thing he uses on me now? Since he's been to heaven and back, you know. Dad, I can't wait till I get to heaven because I'm going to tell Grandpa how you drive. And I said, should Jesus tarry is coming, I'm getting there before you. And I'm going to tell them, don't listen to a word he has to say. <laughs> oh, glory. Anyhow. <laughs> Are you getting my point this morning? A true disciple doesn't just study this book as a religious book. I read a chapter today. Oh, good. No. He opens up this book and says, what did God say? Thou shalt not steal. Hmm, there goes my plans for the day. There goes my plans for the day. No, if God says thou shalt not steal or kill or commit adultery or covet, then guess what? That's the standard that we live by. Right? Amen. Now, next, number two. He loves as Christ loves. A disciple of Christ will choose to love the way he loves. In the book of John, we've been given a new commandment. John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I, and there's the standard. You see, if you don't read this correctly, you don't know what the new commandment is, because we've already been told to command, we've been commanded to do what? Love others as we love ourselves, right? Yes. Isn't that the Old Testament standard? Well, he said, it's a new commandment. Well, what's new about it, Lord? Love as I've loved you is the new commandment, not as you love yourself. And then you look at the life of Christ and you say, how did you love me? You poured out your life's blood for me. And I'm to love others the same way. That you also would love one another. And by this, will all, will, by this all will know that you are my what? My disciples, if you have loved one for another. So now we have another mark of discipleship. I'm loving as I've been loved by him. What a standard. You talk about putting the bar up high. I'm the love as he loved me. But once again, you don't know who this person is that I work next to. I'm sure he knew about that. Because look at this next section of scripture in Matthew's gospel, chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, this is what he says. You have heard that it had been said, this is Old Testament. Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Hmm. Really? Is that what it said? But I say to you, love your enemies. Wow. What? Bless them that curse you. So when someone speaks evil of you, speak well of them. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use and abuse you and persecute you 
that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the, just, on, on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, hmm, what reward do you have or have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute all your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore, here's the standard, perfect, mature, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Wow. A true disciple of Christ then, who walks in love, makes a decision to love others in the family of God as he loved me, but also outside the family of God who are considered enemies of ours, we're to love them in those three ways. Bless them. Do good to them. Think about that. Do good to those that hate me and despitefully use me. Speak well of those that speak evil of me. Wow. What a standard. Think about it. And why am I doing this right now? Because when you come up out of that water, you are dead to yourself. And you are alive to God. You are a true disciple of Christ. And this is the commitment that you're making. Until the day you die. In other words, I am his representative upon this earth, his ambassador. And the standard that I live by is the one he revealed to me. Notice the next one. He bears fruit. This is John 15, verse 8. My, but my, this is my father. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So will you will be my disciple. Notice a disciple bears fruit. Well, what kind of fruit is he talking about? Is it just prayer fruit? Because the prior verse said, if you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask what you will, it shall be done unto you. But being a branch in the vine is like being the fish in the water. It's like being the plant in the soil. It's a person being in the word of God to take the word and the environment of the word of God and make it a part of my life so that I actually live out that part. It becomes alive in me. I become that living epistle of the living Christ known and read of all men. And I bear much fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, temperance, faith, against which there is no law. So the fruit of the Spirit, in other words, flow out of me, flow out of you, flow out of us. Why? Because we're abiding in the vine. Think about it. Anybody have a pear tree, an apple tree, or any kind of a tree that's a fruit-bearing tree? Anybody? Anybody? I see a few hands going up. Take a branch, cut it off, lay it down on the ground, and tell me what it produces. What's it going to produce? Nothing. And whatever's on it's going to shrivel up, right? Why? It detached itself from the vine. The fish has to stay in the water. The plant has to stay in the soil. And the branch has to stay in the vine. Can you see that? And guess what? It's not difficult if the branch stays in the vine because, you see, the vine does all the work. The branch just bears the fruit. Can you see that part? So if I stay in the word, if I stay in the love of God, I'll be a fruit-bearing branch in the vine. That's part of our mission here. All of us to become productive, fruit-bearing branches in the vine. So we're connected to the vine. And we're intentional when it comes to our walk with the Lord. We walk in love. We demonstrate 
the love of God and the life of Christ then just begins to pour out of us. And the next one, and this is not exhaustive, trust me. Notice this. We, as a true disciple, count the cost of discipleship. Sometimes people don't know what they are getting themselves into, so to speak. And so it takes a while before they could learn. To be honest with you, I don't think anybody really knows, especially if you're young, what you committed to. But then you learn about it as you go along. I know when I first gave my heart to Jesus, I was born again. I knew I was born again, but I didn't really know in depth what I committed to. You count the cost of discipleship. Look at these verses in Luke's gospel. Here we have Jesus speaking. And these are not easy words to hear. So get your ears ready. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whoa. What was that? We get an explanation in a moment. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And we're supposed to be making disciples, right? For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first to count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able to, with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Pretty strong words, wouldn't you say? Now, was he telling you to hate your mom and dad? No. He was saying, I'm even above your mom and dad. You see, and if you really love me, you'll honor your mom and dad. You've got to love me, in other words, above everything else. Above everything else this world has to offer, he says, I want first place in your heart. I want first place in your life. Look at... Um, 1 John chapter 2. This is how John kind of said it. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And notice this. And the world's going to pass away. And the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. We can either shoot for temporary satisfaction or eternal satisfaction. We can please the lust of the eyes, flesh, and the pride of life, or we can please our Father God and experience eternal bliss with Him in eternal glory. A true disciple says, I choose Him. Look at Luke 18. Here we have a man who was a very wealthy man, a rich man, and boy, he really had it all together. He thought, mm, man, yeah. when, he, when Jesus hears what I have to say, man, he's going to pat me on the back and just say welcome. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? 
No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. Look at me. Okay. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So here, his priorities were wrong. He thought that I'm doing everything right. And Jesus says, I'm pointing out one thing that you're not. You see, you can't be full of pride thinking that, you know, you've got it all together. You need to save your Redeemer no matter who you are. And he wasn't opposed to people being wealthy. He was opposed to wealth having people. That's what he was opposed to. He doesn't want people to be controlled by their wealth or their money or their riches. The love of money is the root of all evil, not money. But the love of money is the root of all evil. Matter of fact, he needs money to support his work upon the earth and advance the kingdom of God, right? He knows that. We know that. But when anything has someone else's, someone's heart other than Christ, other than God, then he says, uh-uh, that's not how it should be. Now, he understand that he went away sorrowful, but I also understand possibly down the road that he had a change of heart and mind and he came back to Christ. But just to explain what he meant about the eye of a needle, when I first got saved, eye of a needle. I've watched my mother put the thread through the eye of the needle. You know, that's the first thing you envision when you hear those words. And I thought, is that what he's really saying? But no, the explanation is this. At night when they closed all the city gates and doors, they were these large doors. And there was a little opening so that if somebody came during the night, they would open up that little door and let them in so that they wouldn't be under siege, so that nobody would come in and attack them. The big doors weren't open. So that little door is called the eye of the needle. And if a person came along the way with their camel and they were wealthy, they had all their riches on top of the camel, the camel would have to get down on its knees. And they would take all the wealth and all the riches off, leave them outside, get them in, and then put them back. So you see, he wasn't opposed to them having the riches. Are you willing to lay them down? Come follow me, and then let's get them back on. Can you see that? Where people are duped into thinking that he just wants me to give up everything that I have for no good reason and all that. No. He wants our hearts. That's what he wants. And if wealth or riches or anything, pursuit of anything like that has your heart, he doesn't have it. He said, leave that on the outside. You come on the inside, and then we'll bring those things back into your life one at a time. That's why he said, you've got to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. A true disciple says, whatever that looks like. Now, this doesn't look like this for you, but it did look like this for me. When I got saved, I got right into the word of God. And te uh, learning from the Word of God, wonderful concepts of faith. 
Well, the time came, make it real quick and short. The time came that the Lord spoke to me and said, I want you to go to Tulsa, Oklahoma to Bible school there. Coming from an Italian background where, you know, it's all family together. I'm thinking, uh-oh, you want me to do that? Uh-huh. You want me to leave where I live in Youngstown, Ohio, go a thousand miles away to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. You do know there's rattlesnakes there. You know they have uh, numerous tornadoes there. Yeah, I understand that. But go. You know what? I didn't even hesitate. I was one who never really lived or left home, didn't really go on many vacations, anything like that. I was a homebody. But he said, pack up your bags and go. And so I had to leave all my family, all my friends, my job, all security blankets and all that that I had behind. Rise up and go. He doesn't tell everybody to do that. But if that is his direction for your life or my life, then guess what? It's in our best interest to do it. And so I did. And was it the most difficult thing I ever did? Absolutely. Was it the, one of the most challenging things I ever did? Absolutely. But I'm telling you right now, I wouldn't trade it for the world because what I learned by doing such a thing cleared up my head about the things of God in a powerful way. The point he's trying to make is this. Count the cost. Whatever it is, count the cost. Because you know what? The reward is far greater. Look at the next section. We'll close here. Look at the rewards. Look at Mark's gospel. Chapter 10. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we've left all and followed you. Isn't that what he said to do? Forsake all? Follow me? In other words, I want your heart even above your relationship with your parents. I want your heart even above your relationship with your friends, your siblings, or whoever, your wife, your husband, whoever. That's all. I'm not asking you to leave, go somewhere. I'm asking you to give me your heart. That's what I want. And so Jesus answered and said to Peter, who said, we've left all for you. Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come. Eternal life. Eternal life. In other words, the rewards are for now and the rewards are eternal. You can be blessed now and eternally. We won't turn to these next scriptures, but in Psalm 91, he tells you exactly what some of the rewards are here. You set your love upon me, I'll deliver you. I'll set you on high because uh, you know my name. When I call, you call upon me, I'll answer you, be with you in trouble, deliver you in honor with long life. I'll satisfy you and show you my great salvation. In Revelation chapter 21, he says, I'm going to make all things new. And you can experience that throughout eternity. I wipe away all tears from your eyes. No more sorrow, sighing, crying, dying. All those former things are gone away, praise God. And you're living in a perfect place of perfect peace. And that is eternal. The rewards. So what's the admonition? Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Repent and be baptized. And this is something I really want to emphasize this morning as we have this baptism service. Because it needs to be in this culture today. Peter just got done preaching. Can you imagine the privilege he had to preach the first gospel message ever preached? The first one ever. On the day of Pentecost. 
Do you think that maybe the ones that were in the streets of Jerusalem saw the cloven tongues like as a fire sit upon them? It's a possibility, wouldn't you say? They saw cloven tongues like as a fire sitting upon each of them. They all were filled with the Holy Ghost and spoke with other tongues on the day of Pentecost as the Spirit gave them utterance. Peter goes on and begins to preach the most powerful message about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he accused all the people there of killing him and taking his life. But God raised him from the dead. This is what was spoken by Joel the prophet saying. And he goes on and talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Spirit of God in the day in which he lived. He went to the point of Jesus' sacrifice and how he suffered. His, his body didn't see corruption in the grave. His soul was not forsaken in hell. And finally, they couldn't take it anymore. And they just said, men and brethren, what are we to do? Peter said to them, repent. What? Repent. repent. What's repent mean? Have a change of heart. Have a change of mind. Turn around and go in another direction. Leave everything else behind. Leave that camel with all of its stuff on the outside. Come on in, pull the camel through, and then we can get all that stuff and put it back in your life. But God wants us first, our hearts, repent. I know I've been a sinner. I'm no longer a sinner. I'm a saint. If you're born again, you're a saint as well. You're no longer a sinner. Don't buy that garbage that you're a sinner. Just, just saved by grace. You've been saved by grace and you're a masterpiece. You're his workmanship. Be baptized. And notice this. And be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's easy to read, isn't it? But you realize if you are a Jewish individual, when Peter spoke those words and you say, I repent for ignoring the fact that you are the Messiah. I repent thinking I can make heaven on my own by keeping the law. I repent of all that, my philosophy, my theology, everything else. I repent of all that, of all my sin, and I'm coming to you, Jesus. I want to be born again, washed in your blood to become a child of God. And then I want to show the world, because if you get in water of baptism back then, you were either excommunicated or you were killed. Not like here in America. We don't have any idea what persecution is all about. You could die a martyr's death for doing such a thing. And you just heard 360 million people in the year 2021 experience severe persecution for just saying, I believe in Jesus. We're committing to this. A true believer, a true disciple, is someone who's accepted Christ and then chooses to live for him every day of his life. Is he perfect? Absolutely not. You'll never be perfect. But you know what you do? You get before the throne of God and you just say, help me with my imperfections, Lord. Holy Ghost, take hold of my life and change me from glory to glory. Fill me up with the very love of God, the power of God, the ability of God to carry out the mandate that you have for my life. Uh, I want to give you this one last verse. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. Because repenting means this. You've turned from something to something. Praise team, come on up here. You've turned from something to something. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering we had unto you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Don't let that just run over you real quick. Let, 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 I'm going to read that again. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 
In other words, you turned away from idols, you turned to the true and living God, and your intent is to serve Him with your life. Not that you said a, a prayer and you live like the devil for the rest of your life. Not that you said a prayer and you develop your own philosophy as far as what life is all about. That you can do what you want to do, when you want to do, how you want to do, live the way you want to live. That you ignore the fact that God said, I'll put it this way. In marriage, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. That's scripture. Has he changed his mind? No. But you know what? It's almost an act of boldness for a person to even say, I take that stand today. You know, preachers are about to get persecuted beyond measure if they choose not to marry individuals that are of the same sex. So let's... The floodgates of persecution are about to open. That's okay because Jesus is coming, praise God. And let him come, and when he comes, will he find faith on the earth? Amen. A true disciple is one who is washed in the blood of the Lamb, who makes a decision to live my life the way God wants me to live my life, to let God's Word govern my life, to let the Word be a part of me. I abide in the Word. The Word abides in me. That's the place I live. That's like fish in the water. That's like a plant in the soil. Well, the Word in me, praise God, is abiding in Christ. And guess what? I choose to live by the rule of the Word of God. I choose to be governed by the Word of God. And let them say what they want. I'm not changing my view. Amen. Amen? Go ahead. Praise Him. Praise God.